I would just want to encourage them to not be overwhelmed if they're thinking about ways to get their word out. If your listeners are avid podcasters, I love your questions on whether or not they could turn their podcast into a book. I think it's a brilliant way to do it. So I would encourage them to find that theme, find their best shows, get them transcribed and plug them into an outline. And you may not tell you what, I'd be surprised if you didn't have a really good quality book just laying right in front of you and didn't even realize it. Welcome to Star of the Doubts. I'm your host, Jared Easley. Joining us today from the Pacific Northwest is the host of the Creating Disney Magic podcast, Jody Mayberry. Hey, Jody. Hi, Jared. Thanks for letting me back. (laughs) Always good to have you on the show. And of course, joining us from Maui, Hawaii, our official co-host, Kamanzi Constable. Aloha, Kamanzi. Aloha, Jared. I'm just hoping we can keep Jody in line in this interview. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to make our best effort there. Of course, our guest today is David Hancock. He is the founder of Morgan James Publishing and the chief evangelist for the entrepreneurial author. NASDAQ cites David as one of the most prestigious business leaders and the future of publishing. David, it is an honor to speak with you today. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's glad to be here. All right, David. Now, we like to have a little fun on this podcast. So the question that we like to ask every guest is, what is the best concert that you have ever been to? Oh, my gosh. Well, that's easy. It was 1987, and it was a U2 concert in Hampton, Virginia, at the Hampton Coliseum. I was uh, 17 years old, I think, or 18 years old, and it was phenomenal. I have never seen U2 live. I hope I get to do that. It was good. It was really good. <laughs> David, do you like Taylor Swift? You know, I, I do. I mean, I have a daughter, so I hear it, but uh, I think she's great. Here we go. Uh, we have a, we, <laughs> David. We have someone in our panel here who's a, who's a fan. David, That's I'm why. a huge fan. And um, David, I'm a writer and I do a lot of writing. And I said, as a writer, I can appreciate the music that she's writing. Oh, yeah. I would agree with that. She's bold and out there and and sharing her heart on her sleeve. I love it. (laughs) David, what else goes with that is Kamanzi can't go a single episode without mentioning Taylor Swift. (laughs) Yeah, there are therapists for those things. We probably can connect. Well, David, (laughs) let's get started with one of the more interesting questions that I think a lot of people are wondering about. What is the entrepreneurial author? Ah, That's a good question. For me, the entrepreneur author is just a regular author, but one who utilizes a book for a bigger purpose. For example, it could be a business author that's leveraging the power of the book to grow their business. A business card, a glorified brochure. It's establishing their version of the story of who they are and why somebody should do business with them and why should they, they should care. Or it could be an author that's promoting a cause or trying to uh, create awareness for something or something along those lines where the book is just a piece of the big picture. In fact, I even drilled down one, one step further. An entrepreneur author might be even an author that ignores the sales of the books and just focuses on their message because it's really hard to sell a book. I mean, it really is hard to sell a $17 book. It's amazing. People don't want to buy a book. But they'll quickly buy the book and tell all their friends if they feel like you're the right person saying the right thing to the right people at the right time. And the authority behind the book gives them permission to do so. So, David, we're going to mix it up here. We're going to do some true and false. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So, David, first true and false question. You should do unconventional things to reach conventional goals. Oh, I love you already. True. (laughs) (laughs) Could you just uh, give us like a quick soundbite on why? (laughs) Well, I tell you what, everybody else is doing the same thing that everybody else does. So when you do something that's out of the box or out of the ordinary or unconventional, 
you tend to stand out. And sometimes it could be standing out in a great way. Sometimes it could be in a humorous way, but you stand out and people can remember you more. An unconventional thing would be for a mom and pop bookstore in between Walmart and Barnes Noble with a big sign that says, enter here. You know, that's unconventional thinking. <laughs> so I'm, I'm a big fan of that. So uh, that would be one example. Oh, that's a good example. Do you have any others? Uh, let's see. I'm going to say yes. So another example of an unconventional thing would be if all of your market is buying radio and television and newspaper ads, then you get out there with a horn with social media and um, making it very personal. If all of your competition and the people in your spaces are being extremely stiff or professional, you definitely make it personal. If they're, um, you just kind of do the opposite of what everybody else is doing. For a publishing perspective, all the publishers are just treating authors like commodities. You step up to the plate and treat authors like they're part of the team, and then you can be successful. Those are a couple more examples. So, David, let me give you one that's kind of in the book world, and it's been around for years since Amazon came around. So what about all the authors are told one way to really sell your book is to do free days on KDP Select? And a lot of people preach that. Would there be an unconventional way to approach that? Yeah, that in itself is kind of unconventional, but it is becoming now the norm. But it does still work. But there really is no value in it. One, because you're giving it away for free. Even if you do 99 cents, there's not a whole lot of value in it unless you do something that is unconventional with the book. And that's just to make sure that in the book, you've got clear directions and inspiration for them to leave the book and go establish a relationship with you, whether online or in person at the seminar or something. They have to have, and you can't suggest it or recommend it in the book. You need to tell them in the book what their next steps would be. Then giving the book away has extreme value because the real value is that relationship with that reader. So unless you're an author that has that clear path for the next step for the reader, you're wasting your time. Love it. All right. So David, true or false, a book is judged by its cover. <laughs> Even though we will pretend to say it's false, but it's, it's true. It really is. <laughs> it's definitely true. Okay, David, tell us the difference between traditional publishing, self-publishing, and entrepreneurial publishing. Ooh, that's one of my favorite questions. Uh, you, you guys are teeing us up really good, man. I appreciate that. <laughs> So traditional publishing is what you think about publishing. It is perhaps landing a deal with the Simon & Schuster's, the McGraw-Hills, the Thomas Nelson's of the world. And they give you, hopefully, a little bit of money up front. And then they take your work and they bring it to book form and sell it to the stores and stand on your shoulders to help them. Whereas self-publishing would be you actually bring into market a, a physical product or even an ebook, but bring a book to market and you're making all the decisions. And then also you're in charge of trying to sell to the stores or through the dot coms or out of your trunk. The entrepreneurial publishing model is a, a little bit of a blend of both. And we were the first in the space. I think we've got some copycats out there, but really what we tried to do is for entrepreneurial publishing to really work is making sure that the author is just involved. For traditional publishing, the publisher will take over and make all the decisions for you, whether you like it or not. And some things you may have to fight for and some things you may get, but mostly you won't. And self-publishing, you're making all the decisions, whether you're qualified or not. The entrepreneurial publisher looks at the big picture with the author and together as a team to make all the decisions for the best outcome. So to give an example, even from what the book looks like, tastes like, feel like, smell like, when should it come out, what price, the cover, all those things, the title, the subtitle, all those things are fleshed out together with not only just the reader in mind, but the author, the writer themselves, because ultimately the more successful they are, the more successful the book's going to be. So that's kind of the 10,000 foot of what the entrepreneurial publisher differences between the two. 
I mean, entrepreneurial publishing has bookstore distribution like the bigger guys, but they have just typically a little bit less. For instance, you wouldn't find a Morgan James book in every single bookstore in America like Wiley does. Of course, Wiley pays for their placement, but you'll find them in the stores that matter most to that author's reach or at least a couple copies in the stores so they can be discovered. Whereas self-publishing will have no bookstore distribution unless you can prove you sold several hundred thousand copies and you can't be ignored anymore. (laughs) I think that's a good point to understand because we have heard with self-publishing, you can go through Lightning Source, who has a relationship with Ingram, and they'll put your book in the bookstore. But even with the traditional deal, if you're an unknown author, that's kind of what the book buyers are looking at, aren't they, David? It's just hard to get placement. It really is. In fact, um, even if you go to the Lightning Source, which I love, I think Lightning Source is great, high quality. Of course, the quality is only as good as the file as you upload, but they don't actually have bookstore distribution. You can be listed in a catalog and it'd be sold online, but they're not presented to a physical bookstore buyer like you would be if you were published by a traditional or an entrepreneur house. But the reality is no matter who publishes the book, big or little guys, the bookstore buyers, unless you're paying them to place the book, they're going to buy based on their perception of your ability as an author to generate buzz. And they'll keep buying based on that continued buzz or that perception of the buzz and sales. And if they think you've stopped, they'll send them back in a heartbeat. (laughs) (laughs) And David, one thing that we always see, and you've probably heard this even more than we have, is debate about traditional versus self-publishing. What should I go? Should I go traditional? Should I go self-publishing? But I've always kind of said that it's not really an apples to apples thing because most authors won't even have the chance to go traditional. Is that correct? It is correct. And I'm a huge fan of doing self-publishing over doing nothing at all. But if you have an opportunity and you can't lose too much, I think the traditional path would be one that you should try to pursue. But sometimes you have to earn the right to be able to get there. So wet your whistle with the self-publishing if that's all you've got at the opportunity in the beginning. But as you're growing your platform, growing your vision and you're becoming more popular, I think the traditional path should be as long as you can control and negotiate what doesn't hurt you as an entrepreneur, that's a good path to go to or at least work towards. And uh, David Jared just signed his first traditional book deal this year. Congratulations, (laughs) Jared. I hope it didn't bleed you too much. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know how to respond to that, David. So (laughs) I'm uh, yeah, I'm entering into this world. So this topic is very interesting to me right now. Oh, awesome. So, David, what makes a good book title? You know, a good title needs to be memorable, but also short and a little bit catchy. If it's edgy or makes you think a little bit, that's even great. I mean, in the perfect world, a one to five word title is great. A one to four word title is better. A one to three word title is even better. But the reality is it's just enough to make you pause to then read the subtitle. And I'm talking nonfiction. The subtitle can be as long as necessary but as short as possible, but it certainly wants to make sure that you're telling the promise of the book, what's in it for me. But the reality is, it's just to get the reader to take the next step. And that's to flip it over and read the stuff on the back, whether it's endorsements or a short little description of the book. And if they go from the back cover to the table of contents, they're going to the cash register. But that's my vision of a good title. You know, we've seen Blink, we've seen uh, Blue Ocean. They don't mean anything by themselves, but they're out of the box are memorable, but the subtitle is what's really selling you on the book. But it certainly does show boldly on a cover when you have a nice short title. Jared, do you want to test out your title, Jared, on David? <laughs> no, no, let's keep going. <laughs> All right, because I, yeah, I can take that rejection if, if that's the case. No, so, so David, uh, one of the things. Come on, no, no, no. Come on. 
All right. So, so the title of the book <laughs> is called Stop Chasing Influencers. That's the name of the book. And that might not resonate with some, but it'll resonate with others. Yeah, and then, uh, Kamanzi, do you recall the exact uh, yeah, subtitle? And David, we're joking here because I co-wrote this book with Jared. But it's called, <laughs> it's called Stop Chasing Influencers, The True Path to Building Your Business and Living the Dream. I actually love that. I think it's really good. Stop Chasing Influences, three words. I think it could be powerful image on the cover, but it means a lot for your audience. And I would be one of your audience as an entrepreneur looking to get to that next speaking gig or the next person's platform. I think it's a great title. And the subtitle, I would flip it to the back cover. So you did good. So David, as a, as a new author, it can be intimidating to see author, you know, other books out there that have just these amazing endorsements and think, man, you know, I, I don't really, I'm not as connected or I don't know if I can get endorsements that would be wow for some people. Do endorsements matter on a book this day and age? They do. They really, really do. But think about it this way. It's biblical. If you don't ask, you don't get. So try. And those are people that you want to definitely get around to, hopefully. So um, try to find yourself in an opportunity to introduce yourself to those influencers, if I could borrow your guys' stuff, to give you an endorsement. Go to the seminars that you know they're going to be at, whether they're speaking or just in attendance. Reach out to them. If you don't ask, you don't get But even if you try and you can't get the big names, I would say 20 unknowns is just as powerful as one big name. So never stop asking, but do collect them from people that are important in the space to you and hopefully significant in the space. But if you don't ask, you don't get. David, real quick, I love that answer, by the way. But then there's that counterintuitive mindset where like some people just ask for the moon. And what's that balance between asking because you you know you won't get if you don't ask, but also not exceeding the relationship? I'm sure you've seen that where people come to you, they don't know you at all. And they're like, hey, David, hook me up. Well, yeah. maybe, you know, hmm. I do think you need to earn the right to ask. And I, and I think if you can meet them in person, get them to fall in love with you and have an opportunity to tell them what's on your plate and the book comes up, then you can earn the right to follow up in an email keeping it short and sweet, writing it for them. I mean, this is kind of a little, nobody likes to talk about this, but a lot of authors will write <laughs> or their seed plant a, a nice review for them that somebody of influence could uh, personalize and send back to them. But you're right. You just got to be very careful not to overstep that new relationship boundary, but make yourself memorable and um, don't just start there. Hey, Jared, I want you to review my book. It's, Jared, <laughs> it's you know, it's great to know you and kind of build that relationship, you know, Think dating for a few minutes <laughs> versus just plunging. No, that's a good analogy. Well, you're talking to three podcasters here and me in particular as the host of two podcasts. I'm interested, should a podcaster turn their content into a book? And if so, what would you suggest is the best way to do this? You know, I'm a huge fan of repurposing content, partly because not everybody's going to already know you and your platform that you got in a podcast. And a podcast is a phenomenal platform builder. So I think repurposing the content, whether it's a podcast or a blog, I think can be pretty good. I would say follow a theme in the book, which most podcasts have some sort of theme, and then pick out your best shows in that theme and put your best foot forward in a book. And it'll be amazing. You'll start to grow your network because of people that are so far outside of your current circle of influence that never knew you or one never knew you had a podcast can start to discover you. I love it, David. David, if somebody has a message and they feel like they should write a book based off of that message, what's the best advice for starting? Ooh, I would say to one, you have to do, you actually have to make the commitment to start, but don't think about the book. Don't think about the big giant elephant that you've just now invited into your room. 
think about the small pieces. Think about just jotting down a nice little outline of the things that you would love to get across if somebody were to read your book. In fact, I even took it one step further when I first started to write my books. And I kind of still do this now. Is I said, okay, if you guys were going to sit down with me in a room, I would need to make sure that I get across these 10 or 12 points before you kicked me out or you walked out. <laughs> so I want to just make sure that they understand what they want to talk about and list them out. So there should be 10 or 12 topics that they feel like they're an expert at or they're an authority at that they could coach or inspire somebody to believe them and actually maybe duplicate. And then of each one of those 10 or 12 items, if they could take that and drill it down to another five or eight little sub points, whether it's a case study or examples or stories or steps they've taken or hurdles they, you have to avoid to be a success, look at it from a little piece at a time. And then don't just start writing or typing away on your computer at chapter one. As you get led, something happens in the day, you might just want to talk about this one little item on the outline that made sense to you today or that you're thinking about today or that's that happened or, or that you're really fresh in your mind and start writing there and then go backwards and forwards and don't worry about the order. When it's all done, you and your editor can kind of put it back in order, make sure it all makes sense, clean it up, edit it down, but don't think, hey, I'm going to write a book because then you won't ever do it. So David, what tips do you have for someone who's going to self-publish their book and they want to make sure it looks and feels professional? That's really key. It really does need to look and feel professional. Think about the books and whoever you might be working with, whether it's an author services company or whether it's Create Safe or even Create Space or even Lightning Source. Your book needs to look as good or better than the books to the left and the right of it if it were going to be on the bookstore shelf. So look at the books in your genre. Make sure that you can create a great cover and a great image for the cover. Don't do things that your genre is not doing or just kind of pay attention to the rest of the book. So, for instance, just because you're a speaker doesn't necessarily mean that your image should be on the front cover of the book. Bookstore buyers don't immediately recognize you. They're going to pass on the book. But if your book has wildly scripted fonts on there, but all of your competing and complimenting books don't, it's a bad thing to do. And I forgot what the question was by now, but it really was going well. <laughs> <laughs> it looks and feels professional, That's self-publishing. Right. The look and feel should also extend to the quality of the content. Again, make sure the best content's in the book, but make sure that you've done as best of a job as you can finding the right editor to make sure that your words are as logical as possible and succinct as possible because you will be judged there as well. But definitely want to put your best foot forward no matter how you're publishing the book. So we've got a book with good quality. It looks professional. It feels professional. What do you recommend the length of the book should be? Oh, that's a really good question. And I have experience to back this answer. And I'll tell you why. I think in today's environment, the bulk of us authors should be delivering forty to 60,000 words, 200-page trade paperback to the market. But you may say, whoa, David, wait, my publisher wants to do a 300-page hardcover. Well, if your publisher wants to do a 300-page hardcover, it's probably a reason because you're already significant in your space. But the bookstore buyers since about 2008 are begging for more affordable books that they can put more of on their shelves and has a smaller footprint. They say that's what the consumer is looking for. We've been blessed to have 27 listings on the New York Times in the past 12 years, and all but one of them have been 200-page trade paperbacks. I think that's what the market is really looking for. So as a first-time author, heck, second, third time, it doesn't make a difference. As an author bringing a book to market, today's environment, 40 to 60,000 words, consumable, really quick, easy to skim, chunk it out as best as possible, leave lots of air in it, make them feel like they can finish it as quick as possible. David, I'm just going to ask you a straight up selfish question here. (laughs) 
because we, we have you. Well, you brought up that you have 27 authors that have hit the New York Times list. When Jared and our book releases, it is with the traditional publisher. Our goal is to hit that list, David. So could you, I mean, I know it's not a clear cut, do this, do that, and you're going to hit the list. But are there any tips you could give us or the listeners about hitting that list? I certainly can. And it's a, it really is the holy grail for a reason, because it is the most difficult to list to hit. And I'll tell you why. And this can give you a little bit of perspective. But then I can also try to help you figure out maybe the best ways to maximize it without doing too many black hat things. To hit the New York Times list, it really only takes about nine to maybe 12,000 sales. But that's not the hard part. <laughs> the hard part is that nine to 12,000 sales needs to be in a week. Now, if you hadn't passed out yet, that's not the hard part. <laughs> <laughs> the nine to 12,000 sales in a week needs to be from both online and offline stores. So brick and mortar stores, as well as amazon.com, barnesnoble.com, and, and the dot coms, you know, reporting stores. And when I say reporting stores, stores that sell the book and then tell somebody that it happened, whether it's BookScan or the New York Times list directly, because the Times does gather data from multiple sources. But those aren't the reasons why it's so hard. The real hard part about that is those offline stores, those brick and mortar stores need to be spread across the country. So if you're facilitating your your circle of influence all around Dallas, Texas, and no book sells from a bookstore outside of Dallas, Texas, well, you're not going to hit the times. It needs to be from bookstores in Virginia. It needs to be bookstores in California, Iowa, Idaho, Wisconsin, Florida. It needs to be spread across the country. And that's hard, but that's not the hard part. <laughs> Let me recap for you for a moment. So somewhere around you know, 11,000 sales, nine to 12,000 sales in a week from both online and off, from brick and mortar stores that are spread across the country. Here's where the real caveat is. And this is what the Times has recently added to their bestseller list. The book scan numbers or data, and just for those of you who don't know, book scan is the Nielsen ratings for books. It tracks the consumer, you know, who's buying the book. And the metadata might be something as simple as the county that they live in, if they're receiving it from an Amazon, or the county that the bookstore is in if they're walking out of Barnes & Noble. The Times is looking at that data down to the county level. So if you sell books and meet all the criteria so far, but all of your buyers are in just sporadic areas across the country, but not really spread across the country, think of a map divided by counties that's almost entirely blue. That's what you need to have happen to hit the New York Times. So you can't have too much of an influence in southeastern United States and not enough in northeastern United States. It needs to be spread across the entire country. It truly is a snapshot of what America is reading that week. It's the hard part. So your, part of your question might be, well, how on earth am I ever going to hit the list? It's all about taking advantage of your overnight success that's to happen months in advance. <laughs> so building your platform now, you know, while the book is still being written or while you guys are still you know, pre-pub date, establishing that credibility, capturing names, adding value, preaching your best content, developing relationships, getting them to love you, getting maybe the audience familiar for buying stuff from you, whether it's um, other products or you recommending other authors' books. You know, you can't just give them great content 100% of the time. And also when your book comes out, you're asking them to buy something. They're not used to it. So you want to condition them. I would say 95% of your communication to your world pre-publications about educating, encouraging, inspiring, and entertaining. And then 1% to 5% of the time reminding them that you're going to be asking them to buy books soon. And then when you launch, you just kind of Make it work, hopefully, with as many friends and, and uh, partners that you have to help promote the book at the same time. But they, too, need to be gearing up, 
you know, uh, reminding their list that I've got these new two friends that are getting ready to publish a book. You're going to love it. You know, it's building that momentum. Mm. So now that my head is spinning, <laughs> oh, my um, well, I see recently that the New York Times even has, they have a few lists now. So what about if we said, okay, that's, we're definitely going to shoot for all that. But what about if we only want to hit like the New York Times digital list? You know, the digital list is probably one of the, the strangest lists that we've seen. I would definitely pay attention to who else is on the list. And I would, of course, figure out what they're doing. Be a guerrilla spy at this point. For weeks or months prior to your release, pay attention to the authors that are currently on the list, and you'll need to figure out ways to do what they're doing better, or at least do what they're doing. Because you may not know exactly what they're doing is working, what they're doing is not working, because they won't know either. But you have to pay attention and try to find traces of successes and try to implement those things in, in your campaign. It's a wild, wild west with the digital side, and nobody really knows exactly what the Times is looking for, but they know that some of the online retailers Apple, Amazon, you know, Kobo and, and Nook, they do report their sales, but how and what content, what metadata are they actually using? They haven't really said, and it doesn't always make sense. But uh, there are some patterns that you're seeing to start arise from the typical authors that are hitting it. And the neat thing is there are self-published authors that are hitting some of those digital lists. So that's very encouraging. But pay attention and don't be afraid to modify what you might be planning on doing and to make sure you're copying what they're doing. With all and just last question in that line of thinking, do you know or think that it's the same number of copies hit the digital list, like nine to 12,000? That's the piece that really is unknown because only the publishers know that data. There isn't a publicly accessible book scan database of how many books actually sold in that week for that particular digital thing. So it's kind of a mystery. <laughs> I would say that the mystery still could be there with print books because we have actually had authors hit the list when we think there's no way. We haven't sold enough books. And we have how I had authors not hit the list when it's like, oh, come on, there's double the amount of books that should hit the list. So there's a little mystery there, but definitely a lot of mystery on the digital side. Kamanzi, when when your book's about to come out, I know a couple people in Duluth, if that might help with the geographic <laughs> spread. <laughs> Duluth matters. So, David, who is doing something that interests you? Oh, my gosh. It's like asking me, who's my favorite kid? I mean, I, I really have a lot of influencers in, in my life that I'm really proud to know and, and watch. Somebody that's really kind of shaking it up that I think will end up probably on his next book, Hitting the Times, is a guy named Ray Edwards. You may not know him yet, but he's out there in Spokane, Washington, and he's creating a great movement of educating and inspiring business owners with his knowledge, but he's throwing a faith edge into it that you're not expecting to receive in that space. We were privileged enough to publish his first book. It was called Writing Riches. Phenomenal copywriter, but he's got a great business mind. You'll be seeing him in some big places in the years to come. We've got another book that's coming out this week called, I don't know if you want to give names or not, but I'm watching people like Mel Abraham. I'm watching Jeff Walker and Michael Hyatt. Those are guys who seem to be really making some big influences in, in my life. So I think uh, now you guys. And we, we love Ray Edwards, by the way, David. We're huge, oh. huge fans of Ray. Excellent. Well, that's good to know. I, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of him as well. So those are the guys that are kind of influencing me right now. David, what is the best place for listeners to stay connected with you online? Probably the regular places, uh, Twitter and Facebook. I paused my podcast because, as you guys know, it's extremely exhausting, but very powerful. I encourage everybody to do it, especially authors. But Twitter and Facebook are great places to connect with me, in addition to just MorganJamesPublishing.com. Twitter handles David Hancock. And on Facebook, you can just find me at Morgan James or at David Hancock. And so, David, first, thank you for the amazing content, especially my few selfish questions there. But do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? 
I would just want to encourage them to not be overwhelmed if they're thinking about ways to get their word out. If your listeners are avid podcasters, I love your questions on whether or not they could turn their podcast into a book. I think it's a brilliant way to do it. So I would encourage them to find that theme, find their best shows, get them transcribed and plug them into an outline. And you may not tell you what, I'd be surprised if you didn't have a really good quality book just laying right in front of you and didn't even realize it. Wow. David, we really appreciate this. Thank you again for your time and best wishes to you and, and the family at Morgan James Publishing. Oh, thank you. It's been a privilege. I appreciate you guys. Think about the books and whoever you might be working with, whether it's an author services company or whether it's Create Safe or even your book needs to look as good or better than the books to the left and the right of it if it were going to be on the bookstore shelf. So look at the books in your genre, make sure that you can create a great cover and a great image for the cover.